Hi, and welcome to episode 6 of Charlie's GeekCast. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and this week is the comic book episode for the month. So today we're going to be continuing our look at the JLA by looking at the first storyline from Grant Morrison's run of the book. But before we get to that, I've got an iTunes review and an email to look at, which I haven't had in a while, so this is kind of cool. First up, we're going to look at the iTunes review, and it was a five-star review, so thank you, from Russell Bragg. Thank you, Russell. And he writes, Charlie Niemeyer is a fantastic podcaster. The first episode of Charlie's GeekCast was informative and should continue forward as a great listen. I enjoy Charlie's humor and wish all the success in the world. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'm at a loss for words. Thank you for the kind words, Russell. And next up, we have an email from Dave Walker. If you remember, Dave Walker was with me for the two-part look at the history of the Transformers. He's also the host of Flash Legacies, a Wally West podcast, and he's also been guesting on a few other podcasts lately, so please check him out. Um, but Dave writes, Hey, Charlie. Just a quick email to let you know I really enjoyed your coverage of the Transformers. It was really fun, enjoyable, and informative. Not that I didn't like the first episode. It was great, too. It's just that these episodes, and he's referring to episodes 2 and 3, are slightly fresher in my mind. I've loved Transformers pretty much my entire life, even though there are a few gaps here and there. Travis was a great guest, and I pretty much wish I had just a quarter of the stuff he has. And I'm going to tell you right now, Dave, I think we all do. Um, yeah, Travis has a lot of Transformers, just saying. Anyway, your other guest was, all right, <laughs> funny, uh, could have been better in my opinion. I'm looking forward to hearing about the Morrison JLA stuff you'll be looking at next time, and whatever else you'll be sinking your teeth into in the future. Dave. Well, thanks, Dave. I thought you did a really awesome job on the show. I'm really glad you came on. I'm really looking forward to more of this Morrison JLA stuff, too. I really had a lot of fun this time uh, prepping for this episode, and this is just the beginning, so I'm really looking forward to it. And I really hope that the other stuff I have planned for the future episodes, that you're not the only one looking forward to it. But thank you very much for your email. Uh, and after some promos, we're going to dive into our first issue. The Bronze Age of Comics. An era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the Kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories, for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age. Featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weider also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another promo. Another promo? Yes, another promo. What are we going to promote this time? We are going to celebrate Superman's 75th birthday. 
75 years. 75 years. Well, how are we going to do this? I've got this wacky idea. Now, bear with me, bear with me. I think we should read some Superman comics. Okay. And then we should talk about those Superman comics. Bob sold. It's revolutionary. Indeed. It's never been done. Nope, and we should share it with all these lovely people. We should share it with all these lovely people every Thursday. Yes. At twotruefreaks.libson.com. Yes, for seven weeks, Hey Kids Comics will be celebrating Superman's 75th birthday. Starting from the 7th of February, 2013. Join us, won't you? Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice... Okay, our first issue for the month, or, well, I guess it is the month, haha, is JLA number 1, with a cover date of January 1997, and it had a release date of November 6, 1996, and a cover price of $1.95. This cover is one of the more iconic covers. I believe it's even been used as a poster for the Justice League. It was drawn by Howard Porter and inked by John Dell. And it's basically all the members of the current, of this version of the JLA, kind of standing on like three different levels somehow. Uh, you got um, Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern. You've got Aquaman and Martian Manhunter standing in the back. The mid level is Batman, Wonder Woman, and The Flash. And of course, the closest to you is Superman. So it's really iconic, it looks really cool. The probably the only problem I have with it is that Kyle's mask looks a little weird, but considering the way the mask looks anyway, that's not too surprising. I also like that if you look at the coloring, there's a slight green glow given to the Green Lantern symbol on his, well, I guess we can call it his chest. Um, I think that's the first time I re- really remember seeing a green glow coming from the symbol. They use it all the time now, but I think that's the first time I've seen that. Anyway, the title of the story this issue is Them. Written by Grant Morrison, penciled by Howard Porter, inked by John Dell, colored by Pat Garahay, separationed, or sep- the colors were separated by Heroic Age. Separationed? Did I really just say that? Uh, lettered by Ken Lopez and edited by Ruben Diaz. In Washington, D.C., a giant UFO suddenly just appears over the White House. While the exiting Justice League team is up in the satellite headquarters trying to figure out how the UFO got past them without being noticed, Superman arrives on the scene in D.C. just as some large eggs descend from the ship. Emerging from the eggs are eight beings dressed in very 90s-era superhero attire. They introduce themselves as Protex, Primade, Armek, Zenturian, Amortal, Zoom, Tronix, and Fluxus. Together, they are the Hyper Clan. They have Superman-level powers, and they come to save. And they have come to save the world. They are the last survivors of their world, and have come to Earth to fix everything that's wrong with it. To prove this, they go to the Sahara Desert and use their powers to turn the wasteland into a paradise. While Superman looks on and basically condemns them for appearing to baby humanity which he hints that would, you know, bring an end to human achievement. This does not sit well with the gathered crowd, who kind of boo him off the stage, I guess you could say. 
and in determinate amount of time later, the Hyperclan executes several villains and broadcast it on television all over the world. This leads to a 60% drop in metacrimes and a large increase in their approval ratings. While Superman says that it won't happen again, at least 35% of people believe executions like this of metahuman villains should be mandatory, which does not sit well with the heroes up in the Justice League satellite. Currently, Green Lantern and Wonder Woman are up there with the, with the previous team, which currently consists of Metamorpho, Nuclon, Ice Maiden, and Obsidian. Suddenly, they find themselves under attack. After an electromagnetic pulse knocks out all power to the satellite, creatures on the outside begin to work their way in. While Green Lantern and Wonder Woman head out to face their attackers, the others head to the shuttle bay to escape. But without power, they can't launch anything. So Metamorpho uses his body to create an, ex an escape pod, and they head out before the satellite is destroyed, and they crash to the Earth below, basically killing Metamorpho and badly injuring the rest of them. Meanwhile, in the Antarctic, the Hyperclan unearthed their watchtower, which they call Zanzor. In Happy Harbor, Rhode Island, Superman, Flash, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, and Martian Manhunter meet up at the old Justice League bunker headquarters, joined soon thereafter by Batman. On Batman's suggestion, Superman uses his powers to detect increased activity on the 7th Hertz wavelength, which just happens to be the wavelength on which the human brain operates, suggesting mind control and a possible planned invasion. So the JLA declares war. Wow, that's just the first issue. I mean, that sounds pretty amazing to me. Hold on a sec. Sorry, I'm... all this talking made me thirsty. Uh, page one. Um, on this page we learn that Firehawk is sick. This is an important clue, and it will be important later, but I think it's cool that we find out about this on the first page of the story. Page three. Hmm... Fire is sick, too. I wonder if this means anything. Anyway, page 7. I haven't read this era of Wonder Woman, so I don't know if they mention what kind of music she listens to. But shouldn't Cassie Sandsmark, in her pre-Wonder Girl days, be too young to know... be too young to know about Jim Morrison? Just wondering... Uh, also on page 7. I also like that the Martian Manhunter's video collection includes Autopsy, Close Encounters, Aliens, and E.T. It seems fitting. Uh, it's a little... maybe expected, but it's kind of a little funny joke that you only notice if you happen to be looking at some of the background. Uh, page 10. Two of the executed villains in the room are Wolverine and Doctor Doom who does not appear to be pleased. There's a third one that's blurred. It almost looks like the Bronze Age version of Toy Man, but it's kind of hard to tell. Page 11. I like the handling of Kyle here. He tries to be cool with Metamorpho, who just treats him like a rookie. And then with Wonder Woman, he lets his insecurity show, but she tries to assure him that they're both in the same league, even if he doesn't believe it. And then when they go out to fight off the invaders, he just does his Green Lantern job. And he does a pretty good job of it, if you ask me.
Uh, in fact, he actually saves Wonder Woman at one point. So, what I like is that Grant Morrison also works, almost seemingly working with Ron Mars, who is the current writer over on Green Lantern. But he also works to help show Kyle growing into his role. He starts out here as very much the rookie, but you know by the end of things he's going to be the Green Lantern. So it's going to be cool, uh, a fun ride to follow along. Uh, and on page twelve, Kyle looks really awesome on this page. I don't know what it is. It's a very '90s pose. It's a pose that he probably should not normally be able to make. And it looks kind of painful, which could explain the look on his face. But I like it. The art looks good there, and it's just really nice. Um, page 20. Now, Superman says here that Wally West, a.k.a. The Flash, has been wearing a costume longer than most of them. But if you think about it, that isn't true. Going by post-crisis continuity, which we are here, Superman, Martian Manhunter, Batman, and Aquaman all became superheroes at roughly the same time as Barry. Well, Barry Allen, I'm sorry, who's Wally's mentor. The first Flash, or, sorry, the second Flash, the f but the first one of the quote-unquote modern era. Wonder Woman didn't show up until Legends, which was right around the time that Wally actually became the Flash himself, and Kyle just started, so that means four of the seven have been in costume longer than Wally. That's most of the team, which is a flash fact. Just thought I'd point that out. Uh, page 22, Batman looks very Kelly Jones-ish here, which I'm really not a fan of. Uh, if you remember my first episode, I think I mentioned that one of my least favorite artists is Kelly Jones. Um, I just don't like that kind of style. Fortunately, that that kind of ends after this issue, and he goes to more of a, I don't know, Howard Porter style. Um, but that went pretty quick. Uh, that's my notes on the first issue. I'm going to save my overall comments for the end, so after another promo, we'll move on to issue two. Since the day Bruce Banner was bathed in gamma rays, he has fought the creature within. The creature torments Banner. The creature is unstoppable. The creature is incredible. Now, the countdown has begun to Banner's greatest confrontation with the Hulk. And all of his internal battles have come down to one moment. One final chance to reclaim his life and be whole. And three words will change the Hulk and Banner forever. Honey, I'm home. Bigger. Smarter. Greener. The Hulk is taken to new heights as writer Peter David delivers an all-new phase for the Jade Giant. And Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, is bringing it all to you. Join J. David Weider, Lee Busby, and Michael Bailey as they turn a new corner and cover the all-new, all-different Incredible Hulk. Find the Ultimate Hulk podcast experience weekly at iTunes and at IncredibleHulkHomePage.com. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast. Experience the epic like never before. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice... Alright, Justice League... Or, not really. Okay. JLA number two. It had a cover date of February 1997, which makes sense, and was released on December 4th, 1996. 
It also had a cover price of $1.95. The cover, again, was by Howard Porter and John Dell, and this time the cover is very red, which will grab your attention, uh, and it shows Superman against Primade, while on these small little images we see Wonder Woman not doing very well, and it also looks like Green Lantern's under attack, so this doesn't really seem to bode well for our heroes. Uh, it's it's a good dynamic cover. Uh, I don't know why Primate hitting Superman on the in the chest makes it look like fire, and what's going on to make his shoulder do the same thing since she's not touching that. But I don't know. Maybe it's it's not really mentioned in the issue. So uh, that's a little weird. So I guess maybe it's not as good as I thought. In any event, the cover type says the world's greatest heroes defeated. And uh, let me tell you, by the end of the issue, it kind of looks that way. Um, the title of the story is the, Ear the Day the Earth Stood Still, and the creative team is the same as before, so I'm just going to kind of skip that. Around the world, the Hyper Clan causes two more watchtowers to appear on Earth from seemingly nowhere. Meanwhile, Superman and GL return to the JLA bunker from space, confirming Batman's suspicions that the giant UFO over DC was just a sophisticated projection, and failing to find any mind control transmitters. So, the League splits into teams and head out to the Hyper Clan's three watchtowers. At the watchtower in the Pacific, Wonder Woman is attacked by Fluxus, who confirms that they plan to kill the JLA and enslave the Earth. She knocks him back into the water right as Aquaman arrives, claiming that he was too busy dealing with the, his kingdom, you know, the ocean, to deal with the surface matters. But then Tronic shows up and attacks Wonder Woman, so she takes her on while Aquaman dives down into the water to go get Fluxus. Unfortunately, Fluxus can shapeshift, and surprises the Sea King by attacking in the form of a whale, knocking him out of the water. This distracts Wonder Woman long enough for one of Tronix's blasts to hit her and also take her out of the fight. Out in the Gobby Desert, GL catches up to Flash, and they notice that the people around the Watchtower are basically just standing around and worshipping it. While they wonder about the whereabouts of Martian Manhunter, Zoom, the HyperClan speedster, shows up, and he and Flash run off. Meanwhile, GL is attacked by Zenturian and Armak. As for our favorite Martian, he is currently floating over China, or what I'm guessing is China because I believe I see the Great Wall. Uh, he's in a meeting with Protex, who is trying to do, persuade him to join the Hyper Clan, which instantly makes you go, dun dun dun. Way down south, and I mean the Antarctic, Superman finds himself suddenly attacked by Primate while a mortal takes on Batman in his Bat Jet. Batman shoots missiles at the villain. Let me say that again. Batman shoots missiles at the villain. Anyway, but he just catches them and throws them right back at the Caped Crusader. On the ground, Superman easily takes out Primade, but then looks on in horror as the Batjet crashes to the ground. At this point, Protex shows up with a piece of kryptonite, weakening the Man of Steel. And... After stomping Superman's head into the ground, Protex drags our hero back into the Watchtower. Wow. See, the thing is, 
a lot of stuff happens, but yet not much happens. It's kind of weird if you look at it. I summarized it pretty quickly. It took longer to type it than it did to read it. Uh, but, yeah, it's just a lot happens without it seeming to happen. It's kind of hard, hard to explain. Anyway, as for my notes, uh, on page 9, Aquaman really shows his 90s attitude here, and that was given to him by Peter David. At this point, he could really give Batman a run for his money in the whole grim and gritty department. He, and If you think about it, they're very similar. Neither one thinks the Justice League is their responsibility. Number two, they'd rather keep watch over their specific quote-unquote kingdoms rather than be rather than help the Justice League. Superman or Batman would rather be in Gotham. Uh but you know the only reason he's here now is because Gotham's been quiet thanks to the whole execution thing. And Aquaman's more of a or more concerned about his kingdom which is the ocean which covers a vast majority of the planet. The only reason he's there is because of this watchtower showing up. So yeah. Uh, let's see, page 15. I will admit, the first time I read this, where Martian Manhunter meeting up with Protex, I was very shocked. And I was like, I thought to myself, would he really betray the Earth and his friends? It seemed crazy, but I don't, at that time, I didn't know much about the Martian Manhunter other than he was a Martian and he was green. And he had powers similar to Superman. Speaking of that, I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent here. All throughout this story, they keep saying that these HyperClan guys have Superman-level powers. Well, I'm sorry. But while I'm not sure about Wonder Woman's power level in comparison to Superman, from what I've read, Martian Manhunter's powers are just about equal. And if you think about it, outside of the whole mind telepathy, if you think about it, outside of the telepathy thing, they're pretty much got the same power sets. So it just seems kind of mean that they say it's Superman level power. They should say Superman or Martian Manhunter level power. Granted, there's not much that much room in a word balloon, but it, you know, it would have been nice a, a few times anyway. Anyway, back to my notes. Page 16. The bat jet looks really weird. The front end of it, the nose cone, looks like the front end of the then-current version of the Batmobile, including one section that is colored slightly different and looks like the car windshield, even though he's got a whole cockpit window. Uh, and it, this just does not look right. Also, for a guy with a coat against killing, this thing's armed to the teeth. Um, let me look here. Just in this flyby, I see one, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, there's six visible missiles and what appear to be two machine gun barrels. Who the heck is he planning on going up against in this thing? Uh, anyway. And on page 21. Uh, oh. 
I mean, who does he plan on going up against anyway? Maybe the rubber missiles. Honest. Uh, page 21. If you look at the cockpit window of the Batjet here after it's crashed, you can clearly see Batman's reflection. Now, similar to Man of Steel number one, where there's a shadow hiding out in a couple places and you really don't notice it, I did not notice Batman's reflection here until I saw an article of it in Wizard Magazine. So, Wizard. I miss Wizard. It used to be a good magazine. Then it turned over to video games and now it's gone. Anyway, enough moping. But that's it. Uh, the other thing I like about this issue is that whenever you come up on the on one of the characters, or, or any of the members of our team, they use their current logos. Uh, one woman has her current comic book logo, as does Aquaman and all the rest. It's really cool looking. And I really like the camaraderie between Flash and Green Lantern here. Wally really gives him a lot of crap. Granted, it doesn't make a lot of sense because of the fact that Wally had spent most of his time as the actual Flash trying to earn respect from people because they couldn't see him as anything more than Flash Jr. And he's kind of doing the same thing to Wally, but maybe he feels like it's an initiation thing. I don't know. Like a hazing it just seems a little weird. But I like how they both give each other a lot of crap. It's pretty cool. But once again, we're done with an issue. So I'm going to play another promo and we'll be back with issue three. In the decade of the 1930s, even the great city of Cleveland, Ohio, was not spared of the ravages of the Great Depression. In a time of fear and confusion, a character emerged that would entertain and inspire millions of children and adults alike. He began not as flesh and blood, but as a simple line drawing. His comic book adventures thrilled millions around the world. The magic of radio gave to his name a breathless signature and sound. Then with television came a whole new generation to idolize his exploits. In the 70s, the world believed a man could fly. In the 80s, he was reborn in the comics, and the 90s saw his death, rebirth, and marriage. In the 21st century, he returned to the big screen and saw his origin changed and retold on several occasions. Through the decades, he has gone by many names. The Man of Tomorrow. The Last Son of Krypton. The Man of Steel. His strength is incredible. His name is legendary. His battle is never ending. Faster than a speedy bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound.
My name is Michael Bailey, and I host an internet radio show called Views from the Long Box. Superman is my favorite character of all time, and in 2013, he is turning 75. Because of this, a large portion of the episodes this year will be about the Man of Steel in a series I'm calling Superman, Superman at 75, 75, the celebration, celebration of a legend. I'm going to mark Superman's birthday in fine style by examining all aspects of the character's history, from the comics, to the movies, to the television series, and beyond, both alone and with the best and brightest of the podcasting world. It may not be every episode, but the bulk of views in 2013 will be all about the Man of Steel. He is the first and greatest superhero of them all, and he deserves no less. Superman at 75. The Celebration of a Legend. A series within a series, and the biggest birthday card a fan can give his favorite hero, only at Views from the Long Box. Views from the Long Box is a Fortress of Bailey-Tude production. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and for this series, over at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice... Issue 3 of just of JLA had a March 1997 cover date and was released on January 3rd, 1997, so Happy New Year. And it also had a cover price of $1.95. Are you noticing a pattern with that? Um, the cover on this one is also drawn by Howard Porter and John Dell. And this cover is pretty cool. Um, we're in a dark place, but we've got Protex... Uh, laughing jokerishly he's got Superman in a chair tied down with a bunch of clamps and is pulling on his long hair the kryptonite that we saw at the end of the previous issue is in some kind of a floating bubble thing and is keeping Superman weak but Batman is about to attack Protex from the back so it's kind of cool and the, it asks the question who can save you now? The title of this issue is War of the World and is done by the exact same creative team as the previous two issues, so we're just going to move right along. While Protex and Primate are busy torturing Superman with the kryptonite, we find out that Batman is alive, well, and has found a way into the Watchtower without being detected. Now that the wrecking of his jet has provided him with a pivotal clue as to the Hyperclan's true identities, Batman knows how to deal with them, although by this point, he's been discovered by some security drones. Meanwhile, Flash and Zoom are running around the Earth at super speed, when Flash remembers how Barry Allen used to pull out useless tidbits of info which he called his Flash Facts. For example, as a body approaches light speed, its mass will increase toward infinity, meaning that if Flash is zoomed ahead of Zoom, Wow, that's hard to say. Meaning that if Flash zoomed ahead of Zoom and made a complete trip around the world at this higher speed, he'd hit him hard enough to send him flying. Probably at at this at a speed of at least seven miles per second, which is escape velocity. Flash fact. Back in the Gobi Desert, Armek shifts his body to yellow, but 
Kyle's ring doesn't have that weakness that previous GL rings had, so he's able to take a surprised Armac out pretty quickly with an anime-inspired robot. At this point, he's attacked by the mind-controlled people, but just after he whips up a maze construct to keep them away, Zenturian hurls his shield at him, Captain America-style. Fortunately, Flash shows up. Did I say the right? Flash shows up, catches the shield, and sends it back at Zenturian, hitting him. Then the heroes head inside to the monitor room and learn that Superman and the rest of the League have been accused of crimes against the Earth, and that their trial and execution will be given full television coverage. Also, Flash discovers that the mind-controlled transmitters aren't in normal space, but a hyperspace, which is why they could not be found earlier, and how the satellite could be attacked from out of nowhere. At this point, Armek and Zaturian show up and quickly take down our heroes. Back in the Antarctic Watchtower, GL, Flash, Wonder Woman, and Aquaman are placed into the Flower of Wrath, which looks about as much fun as the name would suggest and Armac tells Protex that the Martian Manhunter will arrive shortly to denounce the JLA. However, a mortal notices that they've lost five security drones. Even though he's only human and poses no threat, Protex sends a mortal to make sure Batman hasn't survived. But when he doesn't report back shortly thereafter, Protex sends Fluxus, Tronix, and Centurion to see what's wrong. When they encounter our favorite Dark Knight detective, he surrounds them with some gasoline and lights it on fire, making them vulnerable enough for him to take them down. When they don't report back, Protex decides to finish things quickly, so he has Armag so activate the Flower of Wrath and, initiate operate, and initiates Operation Hard Rain. The invasion of Earth has begun. Alright, um... As for my notes on this issue, page 7, can I just say I love the build-up to the Flash Fact line? I mean, it's really awesome. Uh, the whole Flash Fact thing at the end, I kind of worked it into my notes. That was really a cool moment for Flash, and I really like it. I also like the little note. Um, one of the things that Mark West did just about in his entire run of the Flash, and I mentioned this the last comic episode, is that he will, whenever, well, at the beginning of each issue, and of course each issue is narrated by Wally, he says, my name's Wally West. I'm the Flash, the fastest man alive. And I really like that, and Morrison pulls that here, except he changes it because he, uh, he changes it to that he, I'm, I used to be the fastest man on Earth until this guy showed up. That's kind of cool, too. Page 9. Kyle calls himself a manga nut with a power ring here, and his construct is a giant anime robot. I love that, Kyle's, that Kyle being an artist means that they can really have fun with his constructs. Yes, I know everyone says, yeah, I know he doesn't use the giant boxing glove anymore, but he doesn't. And the really cool thing is that both the Green Lantern comic, and apparently here too, and I'm guessing other places as well, tried really hard to make sure that Kyle never used the same construct twice. You know how Hal would use a boxing glove for several things, or if he went up against a fire, he would use a big fire extinguisher. Makes sense. And if I was a Green Lantern, that's probably the first thing I'd come up with as well. Something simple. But 
Kyle is an artist who's always drawing stuff. So what does he do? Well, we get a giant, very detailed anime robot here. And there's a later issue where he has to put out a fire. So he creates a giant balloon filled with water. No, 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 no. A giant cartoon head guy with a straw who sucks up water from, like, the ocean and then spits it back out on the fire. It's just really creative. I really like this. And this is one of the reasons Kyle's my favorite uh, Green Lantern. Anyway, this is not a Kyle Rayner show. This is Justice League. Page 14. The Flower of Wrath, I mentioned before, is pretty scary looking. They have these nice cushiony seats to lay everyone in with these little face masks. But if you look where the se- each section is going to close into, everyone's going to become an instant p- pin cushion. I mean, there's blades, spikes, giant pins, all kinds of stuff. I mean, you are not going to survive unless you are Superman, which is probably why he's not in the Flower of Wrath. Um, page 21. I love that Batman is underestimated here. Now, I know the common complaint about the fact that Grant Morrison makes Batman into almost a god here, and the fact that you know Batman can do anything and he's the best, and it's the that's just the way they did it in the '90s. I understand that, but here it really makes sense. You've got a group of superpowered beings with powers on level with Superman or Martian Manhunter. Honestly, if you were going to invade the Earth, would you really be that worried about a human with no powers that dresses up in a funny bat suit? Think about it. Grant, well, they should probably know about his belt, but they probably think that they could handle anything on the belt. Because at this point, they no one knows their secret yet. So, I can completely understand them underestimating them, and I can completely understand Batman getting the upper hand. Think about sports. How many times can you sit down, and no matter what the sport, hockey, football, basketball, anything, you have a game where you've got the best team versus the worst team. And yes... More often than not, the best team whoops all over the the worst team. But every once in a while, you get the bad, the really good team feeling really overconfident, with the, especially with the knowledge that they're about to play the worst team in their league or whatever, and they go in there thinking that no matter what, they're going to win. And somehow, there's a miracle. And that bad team pulls out a victory. Shocking the nation. Well, that's the same thing that happens here. And, of course, you know, Batman's pretty smart and figures how to set things up. But still, the only question I have is where did he find the gasoline? And why would these guys have gasoline if it could lead to their destruction? 
well, okay, maybe I'm overthinking it, but I just realized that, and that kind of is a big plot hole. Anyway, um, that's pretty much my notes for this issue. So, we're going to do one more promo, and then we'll get to the final issue of this episode. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. I'm going to regret this. This is ridiculous. Sword fight. Star Tours announces the boarding of the Endor Express, non-stop star speeder service to the moon of Endor. All passengers, please prepare for immediate boarding. No! Cannot get your ship off. <laughs> Lando Calrissian is a positive role model in the realm of science fiction fans. Lando Calrissian. Star Wars Monthly Mondays. Available the first Monday of every month at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com. We would be honored if you would join us. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice. JLA number 4, which had a cover date of April 1997 and an on-sale date of February 5th, 1997. With a cover price of $1.95 and this kind of get this cover kind of gives away the ending because it says V for victory and it shows our heroes flying straight at us in another iconic kind of poster in which Kyle's mask looks really wrong but that's not what we're here for we're here to find out what happens in the issue as alarm bells and frantic calls for help fill the air all over the world, Superman wonders why the kryptonite hasn't killed him yet. Then he starts putting things together. Fire and Firehawk got sick. The Hyper Clan possess great powers. They use mind control. Have you figured it out yet? That's right. They're Martians. And the kryptonite is just a mental projection. So after blasting Protex with some heat vision, Superman busts out of his chair, only to be hit with Martian vision, which burns his cape off. Because if you'll recall, post-crisis Superman's cape burns off. Because, you know, it's just regular cloth. Anyway, um, meanwhile, the villain known as Armek transforms into Martian Manhunter who has been masquerading as the villain and left the real Armek in the Gobi Desert. Not exactly sure when, but he did this at some point. Speaking of Armek, 
He and Zoom are arriving at the Antarctic Watchtower just as Protex reveals his true white Martian form, then envelops Superman, changing into a liquid form to try to enter the Man of Steel's body through his pores and blood vessel to mess with his mind in a more physical sense. So Superman drills down into the ground, and while he's doing this, Martian Manhunter and Primate begin their fight, which eventually leads outside, where she's joined by Zoom and Armek. Have no fear, though. By this point, the rest of the JLA have made their way outside to help him. After Flash surrounds Armek with some lit candles, Green Lantern smashes him, or smushes him, actually, with a construct of a 16-ton weight. Meanwhile, Aquaman is up against Zoom, and he's able to use his power to locate Zoom's basal ganglia, which he inherited from his marine ancestors, and uses it to give Zoom a seizure. While Wonder Woman and Primate battle in space, Protex realizes that Superman has taken him down to the Earth's core, but not in time to prevent Superman from hitting him hard enough to send him back to the surface which requires a lot of power, so, yeah. Soon, all of the heroes gather together with the unconscious members of the Hyper Clan, including Batman, who has the others all tied up. Then, Superman uses their camera equipment to talk to everyone on Earth, telling them to remain calm and to use fire against the invaders until the JLA can arrive to take them down. Not long after, in the Still Zone, which is basically a another post-crisis version of the Phantom Zone, the JLA return all of the White Martians to their mothership. But what are they going to do with 70 White Martians so that they can't try another invasion? Out in the Sahara, the paradise created by the Hyper Clan is dying. While Wonder Woman wonders if they are doing too much or too little, Superman states that he believes that humankind has to be allowed to climb to its own destiny. But that they'll always be needed to catch them if they fall. Over the next several weeks, the JLA build their own perimeter fortress on the moon. It will be the planet's first line of defense, the Justice League Watchtower. On Earth, Bob Gray has had another bad night. To tell the truth, he hasn't really felt right since they let him out of the hospital right after, Justice, right after the Justice League stopped that alien invasion. He feels like he's been lobotomized with a corkscrew. And then there's the dreams. Such strange dreams. Bob won't ever know that exactly 69 other people in countries all over the world are having the same strange dream night after night. He studies his own face in the mirror, and the familiar, terrible feeling swells in his gut and heart again. The feeling that he has somehow lost something of infinite value. A feeling so big and terrible, it makes him want to cry. But of course, he doesn't. He's a grown man, after all, with work to do. So Bob Gray checks his mail, and he feeds his bird, and he goes outside, and joins the human race, where he works as a firefighter. The end. Uh, I don't have too many notes for this one. Uh page 5. Now, at the end of last issue, Protex had Armek activate the Flower of Wrath, and we saw the Flower of Wrath closing. But here, it's still fully opened. Now, 
maybe Armac, aka Martian Manhunter, um, you know, turned it off and opened it back up again, but it, they don't really say that. It just looks like it's one of those old 40s movie serial type things where you see the end one way, and then when they start the next the next adventure from the cliffhanger, something it, it's shown differently to fit how they're going to continue the story. I don't know. It's hard to explain. Anyway. In any event, the Flower of Wrath is still open. Also, yay, Martian Manhunter's not a traitor. That made me happy. Page 12. You know, these white Martians are gross. Just saying. They're really ugly looking, and Protex is going to invade Superman's body through his pores and blood vessels? Ugh. Anyway, page 16. Being a Superman fan like I am, and if you didn't know, I, I'm a Superman fan, um, I love that it's Superman that calms everyone down and helps everyone fight off the Martians. It's just really cool. He's the He inspires them the best, I guess. Um, yeah. And page 21. I love that at least this one white Martian is a firefighter now. The irony isn't lost on me there. Overall, I think this is a great way to kick off the series. We have an epic, world-endangering group of bad guys who, you know, I don't think we've ever heard of before. And our heroes are pushed to the limit to defeat them. And the best part is that Morrison had his whole run planned out before this first issue even came out. So, he's upping the ante every time from here. Um, the art works really well, too. Porter's work is going to get better and more refined as the series progresses, but it's still really good here. The only complaint I have is his version of Superman, which is mostly just the way he does his hair. Now, this is an era where Superman still had long hair, and I'm going to mention this here. I'm not doing uh, a elsewhere in the DC Universe or anything, but at this point, when the first issue came out, Superman and Lois were married. Superman had cut his hair, although that wasn't the original plan for this point. That's why he's got long hair in this issue, in, the, in these four issues. But he had shorter hair, and he was... And, and I believe when the first issue comes out, he's just about got his powers back. Or he's finally getting his powers back. After they had been gone for so long after the final night. By the time this last issue comes out, uh, he's currently going through the storyline that changes him from the Superman we all know and love into the blue energy Superman. Um, so he's going through a lot of changes here. So the, the long hair thing is not going to be an issue after this. But for these four issues, it's a problem. Uh, for the first three issues... Superman's spit curl extends halfway down his face. Now, that's a small problem, and I usually can look past it, but since I'm supposed to be nitpicky for a podcast, i got to point it out. Superman's spit curl, even with the longer hair, stays, you know, forehead area, not halfway down his face, so that it wraps around his eye. That's all I'm saying. Um, also, there there's a lot of spots where it almost looks like Porter accidentally drew him with short hair, 
and then they tried to copy and paste the longer hair from a different image and it gives Superman this weird shaped head it's like the back of his head is looking in one direction but his face is looking in an, it's hard to explain um, all in all though I thought this was a really great read I really think it says something that while I haven't gone back and reread this uh, any of these issues in several years I mean it's not that I didn't like it I just if you knew how many comics I had I've sold off a lot of them I'm trying to narrow them down but I have so many comics and podcasting takes a lot of time reading all the other comics takes a lot of time I just haven't had time to go back and reread these in a while but I could not help but read the entire story in one sitting all four issues took a little bit but I did it I just couldn't put it down which if you think about it, it's not bad for a story that's 16 years old at this point and I can't believe it was that long ago that this occurred but yes that was 16 years ago but it was just one of those things it was just very exciting I, I knew how the whole thing played out but I just had a lot of fun reading this story that's the kind of stuff I look for in a comic story and I'm really that's and it's another reason why I'm really excited to be doing this for this show and why I'm really excited about doing it for this show so uh, that's going to bring us to the end of this episode Thank you again to Russell for the great iTunes review and to Dave for the email. Please feel free to leave a rating and or review for the show on iTunes. A high rating and a review helps it get more notice on iTunes, which is always a good thing. Uh, and of course, you could feel free to email the show at charliesgeekcast at gmail.com and I will read them on the air. I'll also read the reviews, so either way. Uh, again, there's also a Facebook page for the show. If you want to leave a comment there, uh, I can I will read those as well, and I'll probably respond to them on Facebook. I'll respond to the emails too, but I'll still read them on on the air. Um, but in any event, yes, if you f please feel free to contact me and the show in any of those three ways, and I look forward to hearing from everybody. Uh, next time. We've got our media episode, and we're going to take down a trip. We're going to take a trip in the Wayback Machine and take a look at some of my favorite Saturday morning cartoons from the 80s. And originally, it was going to be my favorite cartoons from the 80s. But I was born in 1980, and I watched a lot of cartoons in the 80s, and a lot of cartoons were syndicated during the week. So I figured I'm going to need to split these up in order to do the episode properly and not have a three-hour episode. So next time, we're going to look at Saturday morning cartoons, and I will see you then. This has been an episode of Charlie's GeekCast, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. The show's website is www.charliesgeekcast.com, where you'll find notes and images for each episode. Please feel free to leave a comment there or email the show at charliesgeekcast at gmail.com and I'll read them on the air. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes. I also have another show called Superman of the Bronze Age where I cover Superman comics published between 1970 and 1986. You can find that at www.supermanofthebronzeage.com. 
Charlie's Geek Cast is an I Don't Have a Fate Company name production. All images and music used are copyright their respective copyright holders. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Thank you.